0: be part of the video or audio today. It's not a video, sorry. So she's quite sweet. She loves to sit on my lap when I'm still for a while. She would prefer it if I never moved, I'm sure. But I have to move sometimes. But she's very sweet. So, hopefully you'll get to hear her purring throughout this video while I read to you. So, tonight I thought I would read some more of Sylvie and Bruno. And I'm going to be reading chapter 2 and chapter 3 because chapter 2 is very short. So, if you'd like to get settled in, get comfortable, Relax. If you're getting ready for bed, get snuggled up underneath the covers. Close your eyes. Relax your body. Take a deep breath in and out. And get yourself all ready for the bedtime story tonight. All right. Sylvie and Bruno Chapter two Le Me Inconu As we entered the breakfast saloon, the professor was saying, and he had breakfast by himself early, so he begged you wouldn't wait for him, my lady. This way, my lady, he added, this way. And then with, as it seemed to me, most superfluous politeness, he flung open the door of my compartment and ushered in a young and lovely lady. I muttered to myself with some bitterness, and this is, of course, the opening scene of Volume One. She is the heroine, and I am one of those subordinate characters that only turn up when needed for the development of our destiny, and whose final appearance is outside I looked around cautiously, and was entirely disappointed of my hope. The veil when shrouded her whole face was too thick for me to see more than the glitter of bright eyes and the hazy outline of what might be a lovely oval face, but might also unfortunately be an equally unlovely one. I closed my eyes again, saying to myself, couldn't have a better chance for an experiment in telepathy. I'll think out her face and afterwards test the portrait with the original. At first, no result at all ground my efforts, though I divined, divided my swift mind now hither and thither with a way that I felt sure would have made Aeneas green with envy but the dimly seen oval remained as provokingly blank as ever, a mere ellipse, as if in some mathematical diagram, without even the foci that might be made to do duty as a nose and a mouth. Gradually, however, the conviction came upon me that I could, by a certain concentration of thought, think the veil away so get a glimpse of the mysterious face as to which the two questions, is she pretty and is she plain, still long suspended in my mind in beautiful equipos. Success was partial and fitful, still there was a result ever and anon. The veil seemed to vanish in a sudden flash of light, but... Before I could fully realize the face, all was dark again. In each such glimpse, the face seemed to grow more childish and more innocent. And when I had at last thought the veil entirely away, it was unmistakably the sweet face of little Sylvie. So either I've been dreaming about Sylvie, I said to myself, and this is the reality, or else, I've really been with Sylvie, and this is a dream. Is life itself a dream, I wonder? To occupy the time, I get out the letter which had caused me to take the sudden railway journey from my London home down to a strange fishing town on the north coast and read it over again. Dear old friend, I'm sure it will be as great a pleasure to me as it can possibly be to you to meet once more after so many years, and of course, I shall be ready to give you all the benefit of such medical skills as I have, only you know one mustn't violate professional etiquette and you are already in the hands of a first-rate London doctor with whom it would be utter affectation for me to pretend to compete. I make no doubt he is right in saying the heart is affected. All your symptoms point that way. One thing, at any rate, I have already done in my doctoral capacity, secured you a bedroom on the ground floor so that you will not need to ascend the stair at all. I shall expect you by the last train on Friday in accordance with your letter, and, till then, I shall say, in the words of the old song, "Oh, for Friday nicked, Friday's laying a-common, yours always, Arthur Forrester. P.S. Do you believe in fate? This postscript puzzled me sorely. He is far too sensible a man, I thought, to have become a fatalist, and yet what else can he mean by it? And, as I folded up the letter and put it away, I inadvertently repeated the words aloud, Do you believe in fate? The fair incognita turned her head quickly at the sudden question. And I stammered, a little taken aback at having begun a conversation in so unconventional a fashion. The lady's smile became a laugh, not a mocking laugh, but the laugh of a happy child who is perfectly at her ease. Didn't you? She said. Then it was a case of what you doctors call unconscious celebration. I am no doctor, I replied. Do I look so like one? Or what makes you think it? She pointed to the book I had been reading, which was so lying that its title, Diseases of the Heart, was plainly visible. One needn't be a doctor, I said, to take an interest in medical books. There's another class of readers who are yet more deeply interested. You mean the patients? she interrupted, while a look of tender pity gave new sweetness to her face. But, with an evident wish to avoid a possibly painful topic, one needn't be either to take an interest in books of science. Which contain the greatest amount of science, do you think? The books or the minds? Rather a profound question for a lady, I said to myself, holding with a conceit so natural to man, That women's intellect is essentially shallow. And I considered a minute before replying. If you mean living minds, I don't think it's possible to decide. There is so much written science that no living person has ever read, and there is so much thought out science that hasn't yet been written. But if you mean the whole human race, then I think the minds have it. Everything recorded in books must have once been in some mind, you know. Isn't that rather like one of the rules in algebra? my lady inquired. Algebra, too, I thought with an increasing wonder. I mean, if we consider thoughts as factors, may we not say that the least common multiple of all the minds contains that of all the books, but not the other way? Certainly we may, I replied, delighted with the illustration, and what a grand thing it would be, I went on dreamily, thinking aloud rather than talking. If we could only apply that rule to books, you know, In finding the least common multiple, we strike out a quantity wherever it occurs, except in the term where it is raised to its highest power, so we should have to erase every recorded thought except in the sentence where it is expressed with the greatest intensity. My lady laughed merrily. Some books would be reduced to blank paper, I'm afraid, she said. They would. Most libraries would be terribly diminished in bulk. But just think what they would gain in quality. When will it be done? She eagerly asked. If there's any chance of it, I think I'll leave off reading and wait for it. Well, perhaps in another thousand years or so. Then there's no use waiting, my well, lady said. Let's sit down. Uggug, my pet, come and sit by me. Anywhere but by me, growled the sub The little wretch always manages to upset his coffee. I guessed it once, or perhaps the reader will also have guessed it, if, like myself, he is very clever at drawing conclusions. That my lady was the subwarden's wife, and that a gug, a hideous fat boy, about the same size as Sylvie, and the same age, with the expression of a prize pig, was their son, Sylvie and Bruno, with the Lord Chancellor, made up a party of seven, and you actually got a plunge bath every morning, said the subordinate, seemingly in continuation of a conversation with the professor, even at little roadside inns. Oh, certainly, certainly, the professor replied with a smile on his jolly face. Allow me to explain. It is, in fact, a very simple problem in hydrodynamics. That means a combination of water and strength. If we take a plunge bath, and a man of great strength such as myself, about to plunge into it, we have to We have a perfect example of the science. I am bound to admit, the professor continued in a lower tone and with downcast eyes, that we need a man of remarkable strength. He must be able to spring from the floor to about twice his own height, gradually turning over as he rises, so as to come down again head first. Why, you need a flea, not a man!" exclaimed the sub-warden. "Pardon me," said the professor. "This particular kind of path is not adapted for a flea." Let us suppose," he continued, folding his table napkin into a graceful festoon. That this represents what is perhaps the necessity of this age the active tourist's portable bath. You may describe it briefly, if you like, looking at the Chancellor, by the letters A T P B. The Chancellor, much disconcerted at finding everybody looking at him, could only murmur in a shy whisper precisely so. One great advantage of this plunge bath, continued the professor, is that it requires only half a gallon of water. I don't call it a plunge bath, his sub-excellency remarked, unless your active tourist goes right under. But he does go right under. The old man gently replied, the AT hangs up the PB on a nail thus. He then empties the water jug into it, places the empty jug below the bag, leaps into the air, descends headfirst into the bag. The water rises round him to the top of the bag, and there you are," he triumphantly concluded. "The A. T. is as much under the water as if he'd gone a mile or two down into the Atlantic, and he's drowned. Let us say in about four minutes." "'By no means,' the professor answered with a proud smile. "'After a minute, he quietly turns a tap at the lower end of the pee "'All the water runs back into the jug, and there you are again. "'But how in the world is he to get out of the back again?' "'That, I take it,' said the professor, "'is the most beautiful part of the whole invention. "'All the way up the pee inside are loops for the thumbs.' so it's something like going upstairs, only perhaps less comfortable, and by the time the AT has risen out of the bag, all but his head. He's sure to topple over one way or the other. The law of gravity secures that. And there he is on the floor again, a little bruised perhaps. Well, yes, a little bruised, but having had his plunge bath, that's the great thing. Wonderful. It's almost beyond belief, murmured the subordinate. The professor took it as a compliment and bowed with a gratified smile. Quite beyond belief, my lady added, meaning no doubt to be more complimentary still. The professor bowed, but he didn't smile this time. I can assure you, he said earnestly, that provided the path was made, I used it every morning i certainly ordered it that i am clear about my only doubt is whether the man ever finished making it it's difficult to remember after so many years at this moment the door very slowly and creakingly began to open and sylvia bruno jumped up and ran to meet the well-known footsteps It's my brother, the subordinate exclaimed in a warning whisper. Speak out and be quick about it. The appeal was evidently addressed to the Lord Chancellor, who instantly replied in a shrill monotone, like a little boy repeating the alphabet. As I was remarking, Your Sub-Excellency, this portentous movement, you began too soon. The other interrupted, scarcely able to restrain himself to a whisper. So great was his excitement. He couldn't have heard you. Begin again. As I was remarking, chanted the obedient Lord Chancellor, this portentous movement has already assumed the dimensions of a revolution. And what are the dimensions of a revolution? voice was genial and mellow, and the face of the tall, dignified old man who had just entered the room, leading Sylvie by the hand, and with Bruno riding triumphant on his shoulder, was too noble and gentle to have scared a less guilty man, but the Lord Chancellor turned pale instantly, and could hardly articulate the words, the dimensions your, your High Excellency I uh, I scarcely comprehend, well, the length, breadth, and thickness, if you like it better. And the old man smiled half contemptuously. The Lord Chancellor recovered himself with a great effort, and pointed to the open window. If your High Excellency will listen for a moment to the shouts of the exasperated populace, Of the exasperated populace, the subordinate repeated in a louder tone, as the Lord Chancellor, being in a state of abject terror, had dropped almost to a whisper, You will understand what it is they want. And at that moment, there surged into their room a hoarse, confused cry, in which the only clearly audible words were, Less bread, more taxes. The old man laughed heartily. What in the world? He was beginning, but the Chancellor heard him not. Some mistake, he muttered, hurrying to the window, from which he shortly returned with an air of relief. Now listen, he exclaimed, holding up his hand impressively. And now the words came back quite distinctly, and with the regularity of the ticking of a clock. More bread, less taxes. More bread. The warden repeated in astonishment. Why? The new government bakery was open only last week, and it gave orders to sell the bread at cost price during the present scarcity. What can they expect more? The bakery's closure urines. Chancellor said. More loudly and clearly than he had spoken yet, he was emboldened by the consciousness that here, at least, he had evidence to produce, and he placed in the warden's hand a few printed notices that were lying ready, with some open ledgers on a side table. Yes, yes, I see, the warden muttered, glancing carelessly through them. Order countermanded by my brother, and supposed to be my doing, rather sharp practice, it's all right, he added in a louder tone, my name is signed to it, so I take it on myself, but what do you mean by less taxes, how can there be less, I abolished the last of them a month ago, it's been Veronica and Urinz. and by Urinz's own orders, and other printed notices were submitted for inspection. The warden, whilst looking over them, glanced once or twice at the sub-warden, who had seated himself before one of the open ledgers, and was quite absorbed in adding it up. But he merely repeated, It's all right, I accept it as my doing. And they do say, the Chancellor went on sheepishly, looking at much more like a convicted thief than an officer of state, that a change of government by the abo- abolition of the sub-warden, I mean. He hastily added, on seeing the warden's look of astonishment, the abolition of the office of sub-warden, and giving the present holder the right to act as vice-warden whenever the warden is absent, what feeds all the seed-like discontent. I mean, he added, glancing at a paper he held in his hand, all this seething discontent. For fifteen years, but in a deep but very harsh voice, my husband has been acting as subwarden. It is too long. It is much too long. My lady was a vast creature at all times, but when she frowned and folded her arms as now, she looked more gigantic than ever made one try to fancy what a haystack would look like, if out of timber. He would distinguish himself as a vice. My lady proceeded, being far too stupid to see the double meaning of her words. There has been no such vice in Outland for many a long year as he would be. What course would you suggest, sister? The warden mildly inquired. My lady stamped, which was undignified, and snorted, which was ungraceful. This is no jesting matter, she bellowed. I will consult my brother, said the warden. Brother. And seven makes a hundred and ninety-four, which is sixteen and twopence, the sub-warden replied. Put down two and carry sixteen. The chancellor raised his hands and eyebrows lost in admiration such a man of business, he murmured. Brother, could I have a word with you in my study, the warden said in a louder tone. The sub-warden rose with alacrity, and the two left the room together. My lady turned to the professor, who had uncovered the urn, and was taking its temperature with his pocket thermometer. Professor, she began so loudly and suddenly that even a had gone to sleep in his chair, left off snoring, and opened one eye. The professor pocketed his thermometer in a moment, clasped his hands, and put his head on one side with a meek smile. "'You were teaching my son before breakfast, I believe,' my lady loftily remarked. "'I hope he strikes you as having talent.' "'Oh, very much indeed, my lady,' the professor hastily replied, unconsciously rubbing his ear.' While some painful recollection seemed to cross his mind, I was very forcibly struck by his magnificence, I assure you. He said, "'You are quite right,' said my lady, and now I come to think of it. "'There would hardly be time for more than one lecture, "'and it will go off at the batter, "'if we begin with a banquet and a fancy dress-ball. "'It will indeed,' the professor cried with enthusiasm, "'it shall come as a grasshopper.' "'The lady calmly proceeded. "'What shall you come as, professor?' The professor smiled feebly. I shall come as as early as I can, my lady. You mustn't come in before the doors are opened, said my lady. I can't, said the professor. Excuse me a moment, as this is Lady Sylvie's birthday. I would like to, and he rushed away. Bruno began feeling in his pockets, looking more and more melancholy, as he did so. Then he put his thumb in his mouth and considered for a minute. Then he quietly left the room. He had hardly done so before the professor was As he emptied the dish over her, and then, with a grin of delight at his own cleverness, looked round for applause. Sylvie colored crimson as she shook off the butter from her frock, but she kept her lips shut tight and walked away to the window where she stood looking out and trying to recover her temper. Agak's triumph was a very short one. The sub-warden had returned just in time to be a witness of his dear child's playfulness, and in another moment a scuffly applied box on the ear had changed his grin of delight into a howl of pain. "'My darling!' cried his mother, enfolding him in her fat arms. "'Did they box his ears for nothing? My precious pet!' It's not for nothing, growled the angry father. Are you aware, madam, that I pay the house bills out of a fixed annual sum? The loss of all that wasted butter falls on me. Do you hear me, madam? Hold your tongue, sir. My lady spoke very quietly, almost in a whisper, but there was something in her look which silenced him. Don't you see it was only a joke, and a very clever one, too? He only meant that he loved nobody but her, and instead of being pleased with the compliment, the spiteful little thing has gone away in a huff. The subwarden was a very good hand at changing a subject. He walked across to the window. My dear he said, is that a pig I see down below rooting about among your flower beds? A pig shrieked my lady, rushing madly to the window and almost pushing her husband out in her anxiety to see for herself. Whose pig is it? How did it get in? Where's that crazy gardener gone? At this moment, Bruno re-entered the room and passing a cook who was plovering his lattice in the hope of attracting some notice. As if he was quite used to the sort of thing, he ran up to Sylvie, threw his arms around her, I went to my toy cupboard, he said with a very sorrowful face, to see if there was something fit for a present for you, and there wasn't nothing, They's all broken, everyone, and I haven't got no money left to buy you a present, and I can't give you nothing but this, this was a very earnest hug and a kiss. Oh, thank you, darling, cried Sylvie, I like your present best of all. But if so, why did she give it back so quickly? His sub-excellency turned and patted the two children on the head with his long, lean hands. "Go away, dears," he said. "There's business to talk over." Sylvia and Bruno went away hand in hand. But on reaching the door, Sylvia came back again and went up to Akak timidly. "I don't mind about the butter," she said, "and uh, I'm sorry he hurt you." and she tried to shake hands with the little ruffian, but huck only blubbered louder and wouldn't make friends. Sylvie left the room with a sigh. The sub glared angrily at sweeping sun. "'Leave the room, Sirrah," he said as loudly as he dared. His wife was still leaning out of the window and kept repeating, "'I can't see that pig. Oh, where is it?' "'It's moved to the right.' Now it's gone a little to the left, said the subwarden, but he had his back to the window and is making signals to the Lord Chancellor, pointing to Uggug in the door, with many a cunning nod and wink. The Chancellor, got this meaning at last, and crossing the room, took that interesting child by the ear. The next moment he and Uggug were out of the room, and the door shut behind them not before one piercing yell had rung through the room and reached the ears of the fond mother. What is that hideous noise? she fiercely asked, turning upon her startled husband. Oh, it's somebody in or other, replied the sub looking vaguely up to the ceiling, as if that was where they usually were to be found. Let us to business, my dear. Here comes the warden. And he picked up from the floor a wandering scrap of manuscript election duly holden the said that you would like to have me read, as I've mentioned before, as long as it's in the public domain, I'm very happy to read it. I do have quite a few fairy tales and short stories compiled to read to you over the next little bit. I'm sure that with everything going on in the world today, being able to listen to a little bedtime story, or just to hear the voice of someone else who's not in your home right now. It might be a little bit nice and offer you some comfort. And I hope that wherever you are, you are safe and you're healthy, and that you can feel the love and support of people out there who care for you very much. With that, I would like to wish you good night, good night, and sweet dreams.